So speaking of great programs, on to today's lecture. Dr. Cassandra L. Newby Alexander serves as the Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and a professor of history at Norfolk State University. She has spearheaded the 1619 Making of America Conference, which seeks to transform the narrative about the role of early Africans in the evolution of America. She was also a member of the advisory committee uh, for our exhibit, Determined, and is the author of several books, including An African American History of the Civil War in Hampton Roads, Voices from Within the Veil, African Americans and the Experience of Democracy, and most recently in our topic today, Virginia Waterways and the Underground Railroad. Uh, and so I'll ask um, Dr. Newby Alexander to come up and join me on the stage. And the reason I am not saying give her a warm welcome, we're going to hold that for a moment because we have a very special surprise, one she doesn't even know about. The William M. E. Rochelle Award was established in 1985 for the overall best article to appear in our very popular and long-running quarterly academic journal, the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography. You can see where I'm headed with this. Each year, a committee of the journal's editorial advisory board selects the author whose essay has best advanced the cause of scholarship in Virginia history. The award honors the longtime editor of the journal, Will Rochelle, who served from 1953 until 1980. This year, I'm very pleased to announce that the Rochelle Award for 2018 is being given to Cassandra Newby Alexander. Congratulations. Her article entitled Sarah Garland Jones, which appeared in volume 126, 126, that means 126 years, uh, number two of that year of the Virginia Magazine. The prize committee had this to say about her article, and I quote, we were all impressed with the meticulous research and insightful analysis of the life of this fascinating and important woman who challenged and overcame the racial customs and sexist attitudes of the late 19th century Virginia in her attempts to improve her community through her medical practice and knowledge. Newby Alexander's reconstruction of the multiple facets of Sarah Garland Jones's life brought together the best of using race, gender, class, and space as analytical lenses, and she did so with such engaging writing and use of her sources. This is biography at its best. So please now give a very warm welcome to Dr. Cassandra Newby Alexander as I present her the 2018 Rochelle Award. So that is a horrible way to get ready to start a discussion. I am completely shocked and overwhelmed and very grateful to the committee. And thank you for that very warm welcome. I am in awe that so many people are like me. They are fascinated by this topic of the Underground Railroad. So thank you all for coming. Um, I have been engaged in this research for about 10 years. And so what I wrote in the book was my beginning point. This is a small sliver of the stories that I've uncovered about so many people, both on the side of the freedom seekers, as well as those brave souls who risk life and limb and freedom to help those individuals 
to find this dream that we call the American dream of freedom and liberty that for so many centuries was only accessible to the white population. Well, I want to start my story or my discussion with a story. And I've actually found some recent information about this individual I'm just going to briefly tell you about um, that actually is not in this book because um, this is something I recently discovered. Former Norfolk resident and fugitive slave Isaac Foreman was described as a 23-year-old dark mulatto. You know, people really put a lot of energy into trying to describe people. You had a light mulatto, a dark mulatto, a medium mulatto, a caramel-colored mulatto. Uh, you know, they just went, they went into excruciating detail. Anyway, this man was the property of a woman by the name of Mrs. Saunders, a widow who hired him out as a steward aboard the steamship, the Augusta, for $120 annually. Now, you may say, huh? You, so you hired a, a, a slave to serve aboard a ship that travels from the south to the north every week. Okay. And, and it is kind of bizarre, but it happened all the time in the south. So Foreman used his mobility, as you would expect, to escape on December 1853. But he escaped not aboard the, the Augusta, but another steamship called the City of Richmond. With the assistance of a local conductor on the Underground Railroad, William Bagnall, who was a white man who ironically, I mean, he had his own interesting history. He was married, according to the census records, to a woman who was listed as white, but another enslaved person that he helped escape said that she was actually a free black woman. Who, and that's why he felt compelled to help. When he died, she was actually listed as his consort in the newspapers, which gives credence to that whole idea. More interestingly, this man was elected as the cashier, which was an important task or job, with a Virginia bank. So he was a prominent individual who worked secretly as a conductor for the Underground Railroad in Norfolk. And by Norfolk, I mean the Norfolk region, because a lot of people were said to have escaped from Norfolk who actually were from Portsmouth, or they were from Smithfield, or they were from Norfolk County, or they were from Princess Anne County, or any of the other areas. Some actually were even from North Carolina, eastern part of North Carolina, Edenton, and other places. He, she, he was also assisted by another man, a free black, named John Minkins, who helped a number of people escape. He worked as a steward aboard the city of Richmond, and he managed to hide in a compartment, which was really a little box or um, a little section above the boiler room, so you can imagine what a horrific trip that was. Um, but he helped a number of people escape, and always, when he did so, he risked his own freedom. He and fellow, and I'm talking about Isaac Foreman, he and fellow fugitives, William Davis and Willis Reddick, ended up successfully escaping, and they all ended up residing in Toronto, Canada. Foreman's wife, who was an enslaved woman, 
that he met going back and forth between Norfolk, Richmond, and Philadelphia. She was from Richmond. And he didn't tell her he was going to escape. In fact, he intentionally didn't tell her because he knew she would convince him to stay. Why? Because she was pregnant. But he decided to escape. But a few months after he escaped, interestingly, he was literate. He wrote a letter to a man who helped him, who was the station master in Philadelphia, a free black man named William Still. And in that letter, he said he was, quote, very gloomy, and his heart is almost breaking about his wife. In his second letter to William Still, he said, quote, my soul is vexed. My troubles are inexpressible. I often feel as if I were willing to die. I must see my wife. In short, if not, I will die. What would I not give no tongue can utter? Just to gaze on her sweet lips one moment, I would be willing to die the next. I am determined to see her sometime or other. I found out that he did indeed see his wife. He worked with William Still and others to arrange for her escape. Not aboard the city of Richmond as he had planned because she had a little baby in her arms at that time, but he managed to find her and they spent the rest of their lives living in Canada in a small town called Bradford, right outside of Toronto. And he did very well in terms of his business after that. Well, Eric Fauner wrote a book in 2015 entitled The Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. And he was correct in arguing that many men and women fled slavery, sometimes reluctantly. And as in the case of, of Isaac Foreman, leaving spouses at times, children, parents, and siblings, in the hope that freedom would allow them the opportunity to hopefully reunite with people. In fact, Henry Box Brown, who escaped from Richmond, did so because of his wife. He had tried twice, raising money to buy her freedom. Twice, the money was stolen from him, first by his owner, and secondly, by an attorney who was, who he had, whom he had secured to help him purchase his wife's freedom. He was in the process of raising money a third time when her owner sold her away. And in his account, he talks about how he held her hand and walked with her for two miles until they drove him away with whips and with guns, telling him he had to leave his wife. He sank into a deep depression and thought he would die or kill himself. And finally, he came upon a scheme to have himself nailed into a box, a box that had no slats, no holes in it. He remembered to bring a little device that could drill a little hole into the box for air because many people had tried and failed to escape that way. And he managed to escape after a horrendous journey of half the, half of the time uh, being in the box upside down, even though the sign said this side up. Um, and he spent the rest of his life trying to find his wife and never did. And so these stories 
in many cases are heartbreaking. And other stories give you hope because the families were reunited. But sometimes the families were reunited only in saying hello because both the, sell, the selling away from your spouse often meant that you would never see that person again. And people regarded that as death. And so many spouses remarried only to find out later on after freedom came that they could see their spouses again but never reunite with them again. And so many of these stories haven't been told. And so my effort, my first initial effort is really to talk about this incredible commonwealth that we call Virginia and the many stories. And there are so many stories of people who, who made heart-wrenching decisions, sometimes determined decisions, passionate decisions, desperate decisions to flee. And the story doesn't just start in the 1830s, which is when we typically see the Underground Railroad begin as an organized effort that's organized locally with some limited form of national organization. Rather, we see this effort actually start in 1619 as people who are here try to find a way to become free again. And that is why I talked about these people not just as fugitive slaves, but as freedom seekers. These are people who were determined to find freedom as all human beings want freedom. Freedom to choose, freedom to protect your family. While Virginia laws were passed, making it a crime for, for people of color to defend themselves, there's a law in 1669 that calls for the casual killing of a slave if they resist. The casual killing. 1672 allowed for the casual killing by any white person against a black person resisting arrest or resisting. And so we see that these freedom seekers were trying from the beginning to find ways to achieve freedom. We would see that during the American Revolution when some of them chose the side of the British and they fought on that side to free themselves and to free their families. Some of the descendants I've met who were part of that are still living in Halifax, Nova Scotia today. During the War of 1812, the same thing happened and some of those individuals ended up in Halifax and I've met some of them. And so there's been a continuum of this effort to secure freedom. And these individuals, despite all efforts by Virginia's lawmakers and slaveholders to stop them, somehow managed in some cases, and usually it's a small minority, to find their freedom. So from the first forced arrival of Africans to the America, this quest for freedom was really a reflection of black agency and self-emancipation. The journey emerged stronger following the American Revolution and then became like a robust, ongoing river. It so rattled 
the slaveholders and lawmakers of Virginia, that you would see a flurry of laws starting in the 1830s and then really reaching a height in the 1850s because they were terrified that these people were successful when only a slither of them were successful, but it still resulted in millions of dollars of property being lost by slaveholders here in Virginia. And so I think it's important for us to put all of this into perspective, but not to lose sight of the people who were determined to run away. Often the decision to escape, sometimes it was because people wanted to be free. But often it was something that triggered it. One of the things had to do with the slaveholders. If they were in debt, if they died, if they relocated, that usually meant you were going to be sold. And the more we got into the latter part of the 18th, early 19th century, you weren't going to just be sold to a neighboring plantation or farm. No, you were going to be sold, in some cases, a thousand miles away, 500 miles away. You were not going to be able to return back to homeland. And so it was so important um, to understand that the slaveholder's status directly impacted enslaved people. Sometimes those who were enslaved escaped because of brutality against them or their family members. Sometimes their simple desire for freedom. And sometimes, as in the case of Henry Brown, because of what happened to his family. In Virginia cities where the maritime industry dominated, such as here in Richmond, down in, in my area of Hampton Roads that includes Hampton, Norfolk, Portsmouth, Virginia Beach, those places. And by the way, you all do know what Hampton Roads means. How many of you know what Hampton Roads means? I figured only a few of you knew what Hampton... So Hampton Roads is the name of the waterway that connect, that, that flows in between Norfolk and Hampton. It is the waterway where all the rivers pour out into the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. It is a very, um, I call it the super highway hub of the waterways. And a hundred years ago, everybody in here would probably know what it was because you, that's how you would get around. It wouldn't be the roads it would be the waterways, because the waterways were the roads. And you, your perspective of things was from that vantage point. Now, of course, if I put you or put me out there on the waterways, we might be circling around for the rest of our lives trying to find where we are. We have no idea. But that's why when you're trying to get from Richmond to Norfolk, it's like going to hell because the traffic is horrendous, there are not a lot of roads, and what do you have to cross? Bridges and, oh my God, tunnels. And they're always, always packed. If, you've, if you actually go through and there are no delays in the tunnel, you have reached nirvana. <laughs> and you know that it's, it's going to be a good day. But the, but, but you know, that's because our waterways for at least four, well, three centuries 
were our roads. And in fact, that's how the native peoples traveled. That, that, that was their superhighway. So if you were in, if you were the Pamunkey in uh, King William County, it was easy to come down to Norfolk. It didn't take any time because you traveled as the crow flies, not the convoluted roadway system that we have. And so I, I, I need to kind of shift your lens a little bit so that you start thinking about the waterways differently because the land was for the most part not really settled unless it was along the waterways. That's where the concentrations of populations were. And so what are we talking about? Well, what were some of the major rivers? The James, the Elizabeth, the York, the Nasman, the Susquehanna, the Rappahannock, the Potomac, all these rivers were key uh, uh, roadways, waterways for transportation. Yet, with all of those waterways, trying to escape on a ship was risky. If you were coming out of Richmond or out of Hampton Roads, by the 1850s, the state required that you stop at a place called Fort Wool. Before, they call it the Rip Raps. One of the storms created this massive land, and then they decided they were going to hold on to that land. It sits right there in the middle of that area, that bay area. And so they put rocks around it. You know, they had to transport the rocks from the mountain areas because in, in Hampton Roads, we have no rocks. If you see a rock, we imported it <laughs> because we are basically at or below sea level in Hampton Roads. So sea level rising is a big issue for us. Of course, we used to be underwater, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't be that surprised that it is an issue. Um, so escaping still was an issue. You can always, as even on a small ship, be stopped and hauled over because there was tremendous fear that, that all of the ships, the schooners especially, were carrying enslaved people aboard who were trying to escape. Now those who attempted to and successfully escaped had an advantage that many who were more closely supervised did not. And that's why there were efforts to try to keep people who were working the docks and the waterways, the ferrymen, the watermen, from, from continuing to do those jobs. But of course, they didn't stop. Uh, there were laws passed to try to restrict the numbers. Uh, Norfolk, between Norfolk and Portsmouth, the ferry that's been running for at least a couple of hundred years, they tried to limit the number of men who worked the ferry to only 25%. That never worked. Why? Because these were enslaved people. And why would you spend more money on a free person when you could make more of a profit by using an enslaved person? And that's what they did. And they used hired out slaves to help. And many of the women who were widows, they depended upon hiring out the enslaved people for their sustenance. And so this was a system that really was not going to change. But in our area, in this larger realm we call the Tidewater region that goes from Loudoun County all the way down to Hampton Roads, this is where 
we had so much activity along the waterways, and that was hard to control, and it allowed more enslaved people in Virginia to escape than any place else. But I'm just talking about the waterways here on the eastern seaboard. There were also waterways on the western part of Virginia, because of course we used to be, we used to have a place called West Virginia that was a part of Virginia. And so once you got past the fall line, those rivers that continued, the James, and you had all other kinds of rivers, and then finally the Ohio River became roadways as well for people to use in their quest to escape. In the 18th century, lower Tidewater, Virginia, as I said, would see the certain domination of the waterways. On many of the large plantations along the James and York Rivers, owners actually trained almost all of their male enslaved people to be watermen and to serve in the general plantation work that always included working the waterways. This was especially true in Norfolk and in Richmond. And of course, Norfolk was Virginia's port, its primary port, where enslaved people operated boats, barges, ferries, in addition to training as ship artisans, pilots, ship ironers, blacksmiths, carpenters, sawyers, axemen, and ship riggers. I mean, what did we expect? So when you look at the waterways, all right, so here, here we have Norfolk is here. This body of water is the Hampton Roads. Here's Fort Monroe. And so, of course, we go up the James River here to Richmond. But look at these other rivers all down here. And this map doesn't show you all the creeks that are the size of rivers if you go to the north. And then, of course, up to this level where you have the Rappahannock, you have the York River, on and on. So these waterways were really important uh, points of access that I think is really critical for us to understand. And then in addition to all of that, Virginia created a Chesapeake merchant fleet that helped uh, Norfolk especially emerge as a maritime center. Most people don't realize that on the eve of the American Revolution, Norfolk was the third largest port in America, the third largest port in America. So a lot of the goods that were being created in Richmond and in Chesterfield County and other places were being shipped down to Norfolk. And that's where all the schooners transporting goods and so forth were leaving out and going to other ports as well. And, um, and interestingly, um, at one point, Norfolk replaced Philadelphia as the shipbuilding center in the nation second only to Boston. This mercantile prominence bolstered the maritime experiences of both free and enslaved people. And of course, most shipwrights, those who are actually making, designing the ships, were black here in Virginia. It's not surprising then that beginning in 1751, as illustrated in this runaway slave advertisement, freedom seekers fled to these port cities like Norfolk in the hope of escaping the colony. In that year, 1751, I'm just pulling a year out of the air, freedom seekers 
There were 29 slaves, 39 servants that were advertised as running away. Now you may say, well, what exactly is the difference between a slave and a servant? That's a very good question. There were some blacks listed as slaves, some blacks listed as servants, but in 1751, there were actually more white servants who were escaping. And the slave ads, excuse me, the runaway ads were referring to them as opposed to any blacks who were, a few were listed as servants and the rest as slaves. That would shift by the end of the 1760s. But up until that point, interestingly, a lot of them were white servants who were fleeing. The following year, we would see more servants and slaves escaping. There were 38 slaves who escaped and 53 servants who escaped, leaving plantations all along these waterways that I showed. While most of the runaways were Virginians, we would also see some coming from North Carolina. In fact, there was an example of a family, an enslaved family of five people. Names are Mingo, Phyllis, Peter, Judy, and Fanny, who escaped from a man by the name of Thomas Willis and were actually captured in Williamsburg, either trying to blend into that town's free black population or find, trying to find a way to flee to the north. It's unknown what happened to the family once they were captured. More than likely, they were all sold from each other. In May of 1751, 27- or 28-year-old Charles escaped from his owner in York County by hiding out in Hampton or in Jamestown. And these ads weren't too sure, and it tells you that, you know, there was kind of a, a network of, of people listening and, and passing on word and, and trying to help in, uh, many of these slave owners uh, or, or uh, owners find their slaves or servants. Presumably, Charles went toward Hampton because of the, the large number of black sailors and seamen who worked aboard the countless vessels along the wharves and in the vicinity of this important port area, as well as the port of Norfolk. Likewise, there was a man by the name of Dick who escaped from Williamsburg in September of that same year and was thought to be working as a ferryman in Hampton. There were others, such as a man named Mingo from Yorktown who pretended to be on, a, on business from his owner as he was trying to secure passage aboard ships departing from Hampton. One can only speculate that many of these freedom seekers who took the opportunity to escape from places like Hampton thought that the shipping traffic would provide opportunity and cover for their escape within or without that region. But with the cotton gin's creation and the ease of reproduction, slavery was once again seen as part of this effort as we expanded the nation. So did the expansion of slavery. And of course, selling this cotton to Britain was a primary focus. We knew that this was an international market. And it was so important that by the time we get to 1860, America, and in particular, this area that you see this concentration in, that is what was the Black Belt. Concentrations of enslaved people in this region. That, that section created seven-eighths of the world's cotton production. 
seven-eighths of the world's cotton production, that area. And these people were often worked to death because there were two or three crops every year, not one, because they were in the lower south in tropical or semi-tropical environment, and they could produce multiple crops. And so they worked year-round. Many of these people had one day, if they were fortunate, off. There's this perception that enslaved people partied on Saturday and went to church on Sunday. That was the nonsense that some of you are old enough to remember Virginia textbook that told that lie. Um, that was not the case. In fact, Virginia uh, slaveholders as well as slaveholders throughout the country were not interested in enslaved people learning anything about Christianity. There were exceptions. But generally, that was the rule. Uh, in the Lower South, you may have gotten one day off, and that day was Christmas. And that was the one day of the year that you got enough food to fill your stomach. And so this was a bustling industry, but it was at the expense of human capital. So with this, the creation of this cotton gin this helped to harden slavery, but it also helped to harden those who were living in the Upper South from being sold to the Lower South, because being sold was a good deterrent. It kept you from resisting. It kept you from being a problem as far as the slaveholders were concerned, because one of your children or your spouse might be sold to the Lower South and that was seen as a death sentence. And so it's important for us to understand the connection between cotton, the cotton gin, the production of cotton, and the impact that it had on the lives of people who were enslaved. And I wanted you to also see this. You know, by the 1790s until the end of the Civil War, the separation of African-American families then became the norm. Yet the separation was the very flame that fueled insurrections as well as flight. We talk a lot about the Nat Turner Revolt, but most people don't know that the only whites who were killed were slaveholders. The only whites who were attacked were slaveholders. Those who were not were not, were not touched because that was a fight against slavery. It was not a fight against whites. It was a fight against the power and the excruciating pain that slavery caused so many people. Historian Ira Berlin, who passed um, last year, um, who wrote some incredible works, um, he commented that the American Revolution, quote, initiated significant changes in black life, unleashing radical egalitarianism upon the abolitionist movement, the wartime expansion, the promise of reconstruction, and the long struggle against Jim Crow. So in other words, what he was saying is that this, this, this fight as, as slavery hardened, as people were being separated, it actually, while it enriched America and slaveholders, it also had another impact, and that was that it hardened the determination and the resistance 
of those who were enslaved to fight against the system. So it was inevitable in so many ways that things would explode. And explode they did, as those of you who are familiar, not just with the civil rights movement, but if you understand this whole effort of the Underground Railroad, it exploded with that. But it also did something to the white community that I think is important for you to understand. And that is it made people choose. It made people decide what's more important, peace or my morality. And that's what the abolitionists talked about. And by the way, abolitionists were demonized, demonized in American society. All the names that you hear liberals called today by conservatives, there were a lot more worse names they were called. They were seen as the people who were trying to divide and destroy American society, and everything would come crashing down if what they wanted, they achieved. And of course, the abolitionists were not just white, they were black, both free and enslaved. Those who were enslaved who escaped and living in plain sight, like Frederick Douglass, uh, who talked about he was a thief, he stole, he said, these arms, these legs, this body. Um, so you had some living in plain sight, and you had others who were living uh, under aliases as free people, and there were hundreds hundreds of people from Virginia who lived in a little town called New Bedford, Massachusetts, the place where the 54th Massachusetts Regiment was formed because that was the place that had the largest concentration of fugitive slaves and their families, their descendants there. And they knew that of all the people in, in the country, that one place would have a passion that no one else would have, that slavery must end. And they were willing to give even their lives to, to cause that institution to come crashing down. And so all these threads are important and connected, and Virginia played a major role. Now, I wanted you to just quickly to see these. There are three uh, slides here. 1800, of course, we only have 7% of cotton production. Here in Virginia, cotton was never a big issue. Here in Virginia, tobacco was the king. But of course, by the time we got to 1820, we saw 32%. And then, of course, by 1860, 58%. Do you know that the institution of slavery, the people who were involved, and what they produced, was more valuable than all of America's other industries combined. So America's prosperity was on the back of slavery. And that is why this effort to stop these freedom seekers was important, because it had an economic cost to it. If we look at the population, the 1790 census with the enslaved people, again, where do you see it here in, in Virginia, the concentration of enslaved people right along the eastern seaboard, right at the mouths of a lot of the waterways. And that begins to expand all the way to the fall line by the time we get to 1830. 
By the time we leap to 1860, the concentration is still there. So we're, we're talking about an ongoing pattern where the concentration never left. Now, mind you, we shipped out 100,000 people every single year from Virginia to the Lower South. 100,000 people. So we're talking about natural reproduction that's not changing those numbers. And with every person who's shipped out, who's sold away, this inspires people to resist in some way. And if they could, to escape. So the people who escaped, which were actually small in number, historians estimate only about 100,000 people may have escaped between 1830 and 1860. We're not counting those who escaped during the War of 1812 or during the American Revolution or those years before. Just talking about that small time period, that's a small number, very small number. There are a lot more people who weren't successful in escaping. They made an effort but they didn't succeed. And to make sure that, that um, this effort became a national effort, um, you had the federal government who was involved. Because, you know, if you look at the original Constitution, the original Constitution had a fugitive slave clause. And that clause said that it was the responsibility of the federal government to protect slavery. It was a responsibility. It was the only thing that the federal government said it would protect. Everything else was protected by the states. Only slavery was protected by the federal government. That's how important, even when the Constitution was written in 1787 and amended and then approved in 1789, that's how important the institution of slavery was in America. And yet most people in the public schools know very little about slavery. In fact, when the SOLs were first put out there in Virginia, the word slavery wasn't even mentioned. And yet it is a key part, a huge part of our history. This is an example of how there were efforts to enforce the Fugitive Slave Clause with different Fugitive Slave Acts. And the most important, of course, was issued in 1850 that empowered different states to create special courts specifically to uh, litigate cases of people accused of being runaway slaves. The catch, though, that Massachusetts objected to for for those courts is that there was not a single black person, free or enslaved, who could testify on their own behalf against a white person. Not a single one. And so you didn't have habeas corpus for black people. You didn't have rule of law applied to black people. You didn't have civil rights and civil liberties applied to black people. And so that was the problem. And, and that's why Massachusetts passed a personal liberty law to allow people to defend themselves in court. This was William Still. Thank God he was a major pack rat. And if any of you in here are also pack rats, thank you. But one thing I want you to do is make a plan to box up all of the materials that you have squirreled away and make sure it's in your will 
because you know you can't depend upon descendants to do anything other than throw your stuff away. <laughs> so pack it up, put it in your will that that's gonna be donated to a museum or a library and make sure you put a little bit of money in there to help preserve your material because we've lost so much. William Still was an incredible pack rat, but fortunately, his son appreciated his efforts. William Still was probably the most important station master in the country. I know a lot of people know Harriet Beecher, but, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe, I mean, excuse me, Beecher, um, uh, Reverend Beecher, they know him, but, and they know him through Harriet Beecher Stowe, but William Still was actually more important. He did something that no other station master did. He not only kept copious notes of people who passed through his Philadelphia station, but he went to extreme measures to preserve all of his notes. Most of the other station masters destroyed their material at the end of the Civil War. During the Civil War, fearing that the Confederates would actually somehow get to Philadelphia and get a hold of his records, he buried his records in a cemetery. And then in 1867, that's when he, he pulled it out of the cemetery and started work on producing a book entitled The Underground Railroad. But in addition to the book where he has all these stories collected, he did something else. He had notes. And those notes were packed in a box, along with a lot of other things. And his son, the early part of the 20th century, took that and gave it to the Philadelphia Historical Society. They promptly forgot that they had this material. And it sat in a box for, I don't know, about six, seven decades until somebody discovered it and realized what a treasure trove they had. And since then, they have been scanning, uploading, transcribing those materials. And it is, like I said, an incredible treasure trove. And William still started doing this because one day, as he was talking with a young man who was passing through his station, who was a little older than he was, he found out this man was from where his parents were because his parents escaped through the Underground Railroad. And he was born in a free land, although technically he was a slave because of the law that said the status of the, of the child followed that of the African-American mother. And anyway, he found out this young man was from where his parents were from. And then he found out this was his brother, his brother who had been sold away before his family escaped. And he decided at that point that he would take copious notes that one day, maybe during freedom, that families would be able to use his sources to track down where their family members left. And so we have this, these letters from people who kept in touch with him. We have his descriptions and accounts of how people escape. We have drawings recreating those incidences, all packed in this 700-plus book. Well, in this book, still recorded over 763 freedom seekers coming from the South. 285 of those individuals came just from Virginia, 
350 came from Maryland. And you would kind of expect that since Maryland was contiguous to Pennsylvania and to Delaware, even though Delaware allowed for slaves, but they could get over quickly into free territory. In Virginia, most of those who escaped did not escape on foot or by wagon or train. They escaped uh, through the waterways. In fact, of that number, 102, he documented escaping from Norfolk. Now, not all of them came from Norfolk. Some of them came from Hampton and other places, but they left from the port of Norfolk. 52 left from the port of Richmond. Some of them were actually from Petersburg, but the majority were actually from Richmond. 22 from Petersburg, 20 from Portsmouth, et cetera, et cetera. And, and just about all of them, with maybe 2% exception, escaped aboard boats, schooners, steamships, sometimes skiffs. The typical um, steamship, this is what you would see coming into Richmond, coming into Norfolk, and eventually going up to Philadelphia, sometimes New York, sometimes Boston. Most of the time, though, the schooners were going back and forth between Boston, New Bedford, some of the other smaller, uh, some of the other port areas in the north. But that's a typical example. What would we see during this time period that frightened a lot of the slaveholders was the fact that there were lots of people who were being hired out, but there was nothing they could do about that because that's how a lot of people survived. But as you can see, even though they knew that a lot of enslaved people who were hired out were more than likely to be the ones trying to escape, that was still a big business. And interestingly, it didn't matter if we were in Norfolk, Hampton, Richmond, Petersburg, it seemed that all the slave traders were located on somebody's main street. And, and I, I say that and it's important because Main Street was where the main business was taking place. And that main business in the South was always the buying and selling of enslaved people. And so when you see these kinds of ads often juxtaposed near these kinds of ads because people were running away, there was an actual correlation, not just a positional correlation. Now, I love this particular story. In fact, if you go to Norfolk today and you go to Waterside, you'll see this on a, a, a marker. And this marker is actually positioned near where that incident happened. There was a man by the name of Captain Alfred Fountain. He operated mostly out of between Norfolk and um, the New England ports. And he charged money to help carry enslaved people from point A to point Z. But he took a big risk. And there were a number of other captains who charged anywhere from $25 to $100 a person. Where did the enslaved people get the money? Some of them, of course, hired out their time and they were collecting money. Other times they just took it straight from the slaveholders because, hey, they felt it was their money anyway since they didn't get paid to do all the work they were doing. This man built a secret compartment aboard his ship. It held at least 22 slaves at the time this incident took place. Word got around 
as you would expect, that there were slaves hidden aboard his ship. And so the mayor of Norfolk in the tall hat, and of course his usual thugs and a businessman accompanied them and they were going to tear the ship apart because they knew there were enslaved people aboard that ship. And so Fountain kind of being this um, grandstander um, said, oh, you think there are slaves aboard my ship? I'll help you find them. And he grabbed the ax and started chopping on the opposite side of where they were actually hidden. And there are some people, as in the case of this man, you know, kind of wheeling back, going, whoa, maybe there aren't any slaves aboard, while others are sitting there going, yeah, keep, keep, keep chopping, keep chopping. I know they're here. They let him go, but he knew they would probably, they were not really believing him, and they sent word up to the north, up to Philadelphia, that there were probably enslaved people aboard the ship. So he actually waylaid in another area, and there were 22 people. There's a picture that William still has in his book showing 22 people hauling up a, a, a huge um, hill trying to get to where some waiting carriages were waiting. Now, if anybody, even outside of Philadelphia, white or black, were caught helping those enslaved people, they were going to be arrested and put in prison. In fact, Virginia in 1850, had about 22 men in prison. Now, a prison sentence of 10 years was the same as a death sentence. No one was expected to survive Virginia's penitentiary here in Richmond for 10 years. Nobody. And so that was how they dealt with a lot of people who were um, helping a lot of whites because they were seen as far more dangerous than even a free black helping enslaved people escape because of their mobility, because of the rights that they had in this country. So I think it's important to know that. This other picture um, I think is really important because this area is in the western part of the state and it shows you how even those rivers in the western part of the state going to northern areas were surveyed. There was tremendous fear that people would um, try to escape on uh, usually a rowboat or a smaller skiff or something. And so there was always monitoring going on throughout the state, north, south, east, and west, but especially along the areas of the eastern seaboard. Now, this particular picture. Now, this one doesn't actually have anything to do with the waterways, but I love this story because, and, and I'm going to be biased here, this woman here, and I don't know if you can see this gun she's holding, but I think the most dangerous person in the world is a woman holding a gun. <laughs> I really do. Because, you know, men show their prowess, you know, fighting. If a woman pulls a gun, she is going to shoot you. <laughs> She's not threatening to shoot you. She is going to shoot you, which is why those men are running away, because she, they know this woman is about to shoot them. Now, this, is, um, this particular situation is called the Grigby Party. Um, there was a conductor who was helping 
uh, Harris and, and Matterson, these were two brothers, to escape from Martinsville. And then the rest of the people who were in that wagon were from Loudoun and Fakir counties. Barnaby Grigby, Mary Elizabeth Frank Wanzer, and Emily Foster, they all escaped from their owners, but found themselves fighting for their lives near the Cheat River in Maryland. So they had made it by wagon all the way. But these men who were here, they're all slave hunters. Because being a slave hunter in the 1850s was a lucrative business. You not only got paid by the state here in Virginia that offered a reward to slave hunters, but the owners would pay you as well. So, and, and the business was so big that the vice constable in Norfolk, who was a notorious slave hunter, was in Boston all the time hunting for slaves. So he made most of his money, not as a vice constable, but as a slave hunter. And so what happened was the group was confronted by six white men and one white boy who believed the travelers were fugitive slaves, and they basically challenged them and managed to push them away and got away. Now, there are lots of other stories I have, and I have taken so much of your time and realized that I've gone past my time and not provided you, but the ability to ask one question, I encourage you to read the book, read more about the Underground Railroad, to find out more about these fascinating stories that also include places such as the Great Dismal Swamp. But thank you all so much for your time and attention, and I think I have time for one quick question. One quick question. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. I think one of many things that you said, one thing that is really important that I, as an aspiring historian, wish for is for people to take seriously your challenge to save their papers. If they don't know what to do with them, please find a place to send them to, because were it not for these little bits and pieces, you wouldn't be able to do your scholarship. Yes. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much.